0: Father, I want to pray this morning for those of us who are here who would be guilty of sins like Amnon's. Maybe not exactly. I pray this morning for correction. I pray this morning for your spirit to bring rebuke that you would turn hearts toward Christ, the merciful Lamb of God who covers every sin. And I want to pray this morning for people here who will relate to Tamar, that you would shepherd them tenderly this morning. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would you would govern all of my words this morning, that your truth would be on display. And I pray that those who can hear my voice will measure all that's said according to your word. And I pray this morning for those who relate to David as they watch the abuse of one child by another, I pray that you would encourage, that you would strengthen I pray that you would help all of us to understand abuse with greater clarity, understand how we can respond in ways that demonstrate your justice here on earth, while acknowledging that your perfect justice will come in time. So as we think about the question, where do we carry our shame, whether it's shame from our own sin or shame that comes to us because of somebody else's sin. I pray that you would remind us that you are the humiliated God, that you are the merciful God, that you are the just God. Holy Spirit, strengthen us by your word this morning, we pray. Amen. Devastating evil is present all around us. And thankfully, God doesn't shrink back from the hard things of this life. The Bible is honest about the raw realities of life, the rawest of realities of life. And about what God is doing to hammer out His good purposes for us in the middle of the worst circumstances. And let's not forget where evil comes from as we begin this morning. Our rebellion against God broke His good creation. Our rebellion has vertical consequences between us and God that lead to separation between us and God. And our rebellion against Him also has horizontal consequences. Awful sin toward one another. And this is what we're stepping into this morning in 2 Samuel 13. And the question that gripped me on Monday morning is the one asked by Tamar. Where can I carry my shame? What do I do with the suffering grief of being sinned against by another person? And here's a critical framework for understanding and listening carefully to this passage this morning. Sometimes you're suffering like Tamar. Someone else's sin devastates your life. And you're asking the question, where do I carry my shame from what they've done? Who will take away my pain? And sometimes you're sinning like Amnon. Maybe not exactly like him, but you're sinning and your sin causes untold suffering on the people around you. You need to tremble before Jesus the judge. You need to ask yourself the question, where can I carry my shame? Where do I rid myself of this guilt? Now, I want to be clear about something as Tamar asks the question, where do I carry my shame? I'm not in any way intending to say that this shame is caused by Tamar. It's not. It's caused by Amnon. But if I were to murder someone this morning and I had blood all over my hands and then came and hugged you, some of the guilt of what I had done would be on you. And you're asking the question, where do I go with the shame that's been done to me? And if you're Amnon and you're guilty, you ask the question, how do I get rid of this guilt? So where do we carry our shame? I want to argue this morning we carry our shame in circumstances like this to the humiliated God. And I'll try to explain that. And to the merciful God. And to the just God. I pray this morning will urge us to take refuge near the cross where God's mercy and His justice converge. Take refuge near the cross where a humiliated Jesus ensures mercy for sinners, and justice for sufferers. Let's begin in verses 1 through 14. Shameful rebellion and the humiliated God. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved Tamar. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. Now, I think we have to acknowledge at the outset that the things that transpire in this chapter are all downstream from David's polygamy. They're all downstream consequences of the complicated nature of David's marriage practices. Tamar is the sister of Absalom, their mother is Makkah, the daughter of the king of Jeshur, and this is who. Absalom will flee to for protection later on in the chapter. Tamar's name means palm tree, and she's described here as a beautiful and as a virgin or as a young woman of marriageable age. Amnon is David's firstborn son. His mother is Ahinoam of Jezreel, and he's the oldest son of David, which probably makes him heir to the throne. And this makes him extremely powerful as a member of David's household, but his power has limits. Amnon is tormented by his shameful desire for his half-sister Tamar, tormented because it seems impossible for him to fulfill the evil desires of his heart, either because the king's virgin daughters are kept under protection or because God repeatedly forbids this kind of incestuous relationship between siblings in the law that God had given to Moses. And so Amnon is caught between his shameful desires and the immovable clarity of God's Word. And so he's tormented. But Amnon has a crafty friend who has a vile plan. Look at verse 3. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab the son of Shimeah, David's brother. So Jonadab is also Amnon's cousin. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O oh, son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Why are you sick, you son of the king? What do you not have? Will you not tell me? And Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. And Jonadab said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat from her hand. Now look at verse 6. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, this is David, please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight and then I may eat from her hand. And then David sent home to Tamar saying, go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So King David comes concerned for his son and his son asks for Tamar, his half sister to come and prepare cakes. David has to be unwilling or unknowing about this and agrees. Look at verse eight. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down and she took dough and kneaded it. And made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon sent out, uh, and Amnon said, send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. And then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes that she had made and brought them into the chamber to Am- Am- Amnon, her brother. But when she had brought them near to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, come lie with me. My sister, Though Tamar has done exactly what Amnon has asked of her, he refuses to eat and sends everyone away. And while she's been seeking to serve him, he's been wickedly scheming. And as she moves close enough for him to reach, he reaches out and grabs her hand and demands that she lie with him. Look at verse 12. Tamar answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. And We should double-click on Tamar's courage and intelligence this morning. She's quick-thinking. King David's eldest and most powerful son, the heir to the throne, demands sex, but she refuses him. No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. This would violate God's heart and God's law. This is an outrageous thing, literally foolishly wicked. That's the thing you are pursuing. She's brave and she's clear and she thinks quickly. She says, Amnon, this is disgusting and vile. And then she speaks for herself. As for me, where could I carry my shame? Again, not that the shame is hers. The shame is all Amnon's. But the reproach of his sin would be hard for her to recover from in her context 3,000 years ago. Where could I carry my reproach? Where could I carry my shame? What hope would I have? My life would be over. And then she turns to Amnon, and as for you, you would be one of the outrageous, literally, you would be one of the wicked fools in Israel. Amnon, you would be disgraced by this. No one in Israel would approve of this. She's not pulling any punches. She knows how much is on the line 3,000 years ago as she's envisioning what may happen to her as a result of this. Now, her final statement is less clear. She's either shrewdly stalling for time or she thinks that somehow David will muddy God's law and give Amnon what he wants. But Amnon's not waiting. Amnon has chosen evil. Verse 14, but Amnon would not listen to her and being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. There's no ambiguity here. Amnon is, being stronger than Tamar, violated her and laid with her. Rape is so wicked because it violently takes what is to be freely given in the context of marriage. Rape is so wicked because it violently takes what is to be freely given in the context of a marriage covenant. Rape demands what no one has the right to demand. Even our everything goes culture agrees with consent at least at this point. Middle and high school students, no adult, no friend, no peer may demand to touch or look at your body. Abusive people will use manipulation. They'll use fear and guilt and shame to keep things like this quiet. And no matter what they say, to guilt or to manipulate you, speak with boldness like Tamar and then run if you can And tell an adult you trust what's just happened. And keep telling adults you trust until someone acts. And don't forget that the shame belongs to Amnon, not to Tamar. Even though Tamar's question is this, where can I carry my shame? Amnon's abuse is high-handed wickedness. And God takes it with the utmost severity. In almost every case, God tells his people to put a rapist to death. Their life is to be extinguished according to God's law in the Old Testament. It tells you how God feels about this. But Tamar's been treated shamefully. The reproach is Amnon's, but she carries the excruciating pain. So where? Can Tamar carry her shame? Where can she go with the darkness that she's endured? To a humiliated God. Because God sees our pain. Because God understands our pain. And because God has acted to remove our pain. In Philippians 2, verses 6 through 8, we read that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not Count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be held on to. But he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. He doesn't stop being God, the second person of the Trinity, but he takes on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, having taken on human flesh, he humbles himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. How humiliating for God to die! He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus is the eternal God, the glorious second person of the Trinity. The fullness of God the Father dwells in Christ. By Jesus and for Jesus, all things have been made. All authorities, dominions, and creation submit to Jesus. And yet, yet, he humiliates himself by taking on the form of a servant by being born in human form and he's born into a poor family and he has no place to lay his head and the eternal God feels hunger and thirst and fatigue and want. He's despised and rejected by his own people. He's mocked and persecuted throughout his life. He's beaten and slapped. He's whipped and brutalized. According to Roman custom, he's stripped naked in public and nailed to a cross. And they ridicule and torment Him. They scourge Him. They spit in His face. They pluck out His beard. But He endured all of this humiliation for us. He's smitten by God and afflicted for us. He's tempted by Satan and assaulted for us. He carries our griefs and sorrows. He's pierced for our transgressions and sins. He fulfills the law for us. Like a shepherd... Jesus lays his life down for us. And his chastisement brings us peace. His wounds secure our healing. He absorbs our curse for us so that we are free and alive. Where can we carry our shame? To a humiliated God. Jesus knows what it feels like to bear the weight and consequences of another person's sin. He knows what it's like to feel the shame of someone else's sin, to bear the weight and the consequence of it. He gets Tamar, and he gets you. But more than that, more than understanding you, through faith in the gospel, you begin to experience the reversal of the curse of sin. Sin's effects in the world's world around you and in your own heart begin to retreat in the face of Jesus' victory. There's a great reversal. And through faith in Jesus, we're caught up in his victory. And the beauty is hammered out in the ashes. So we can say with confidence, we've carried our shame our own shame and the shame done to us to the humiliated God. And so we can say with Isaiah in Isaiah 61, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robes of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. That is how God sees you because of Christ. If you are in him, if you are trusting in him and depending on him, that is how God sees you. You are a daughter of the king. You are a son of the king. And all the effects of sin done to you have been replaced with the brilliant robes of Christ's righteousness. Now that's about as graphic as our passage will be. As we turn towards verses 15 to 19, we read broken cisterns and the merciful God. Broken cisterns and the merciful God. Look at verse 15. Then Amnon hated Tamar with a very great hatred so that the hatred which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up, go. Amnon ends up hating Tamar with a very great hatred. In fact, his hatred swells larger than his lust. What a revealing picture of the bitter deception of sin. We have to learn this lesson if we're going to avoid sin. Amnon has driven and has been driven and tormented by a desire for Tamar, but he is left severely dissatisfied. This sin that had driven him literally sick to the point where his cousin can ask him, what's wrong with you? He finally gets what his heart longed for and he is completely dissatisfied. Sin always lies to us. Sin never satisfies our thirst. Sin always devours and destroys. Sin always leads to death. We can't play with sin. Sin isn't fun. It isn't a good time. Sin is deadly serious. It always consumes us and it always ravages the people around us. Amnon demands Tamar get up and leave his house, but she has not lost her boldness. Look at verse 16. But she said to him, no, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. No, I won't go. Sending me away at this point is a greater evil than what you have just done to me. You understand our context. Remember, 3,000 years ago, you understand that I cannot recover from this. To send me out of here is worse than what you've just done to me. Verse 17. The end of sixteen, But he would not listen to her, and he called the young men who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her, and Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went, Her robe and these ashes show the world what has just happened to her. The gruesome, ugly heart of this pitiful, weak man is really hard for us to read. Literally, he says to his servants, throw this thing out. And they throw her out and they bolt the door behind her. But be careful before picking up rocks to stone Amnon. Because I don't think we should assume that we're all that different than him. I'm not saying that we are all guilty of this. But I am saying that Amnon's lust didn't overwhelm him in a moment. This is not like one big wave that just knocks him over and he falls, though that happens. No, Amnon's sin is more subtle. It grows like cancer over time. He's nursing his lust and it overtakes him. And so it is with us. That's why Jesus says in Matthew five, twenty-eight, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus wants us to understand our own hearts, to look at our own minds, to understand what's happening in our minds, and to understand how our heart is grabbing on to those thoughts. What's happening in your mind and in your heart? Are you looking at someone with lustful intent? Are you nursing an attraction? Are you engaging in fantasy? Are you seeking someone's attention? Are you pushing boundaries in conversations? These habits will devour us. And how do you assume that your pornography addiction is supported? Who supports your addiction to pornography? Porn is not a victimless crime. Do you think that every one of those image bearers that you're consuming on your screen is consenting? Have you not considered the enormous human trafficking racket that fuels the content that you're indulging? The men, women, and minors coerced and entrapped and abused so that content can be delivered to your device. Middle and high school and college students, fight this now. Don't settle for a life in the shadows. Don't settle for a decades-long addiction to this. What you are longing for is real relationships where you are enjoyed and respected, where you are seen and enjoyed and respected. That's what you're longing for. Pornography cannot satisfy those desires. I know how lonely life can be. I know how difficult those teenage and college years can be. That's why we pray for local churches where real relationships can transpire. Where you can live in a church where you're wanted and enjoyed and respected for who you are. Where you can develop deep, meaningful relationships with people older than you and younger than you and your peers. Where you can experience real, live people with whom you can converse, with whom you can worship God and pursue Him forever. And married people, do do you not realize that your marriage is being destroyed by porn consumption? Whether or not you think that your spouse knows you are polluting and strangling your sexual relationship. And pornography does not stay under our control. Sin never does. And pornography never satisfies our thirst. Sin never can. That's why God says in Jeremiah 2, my people have committed two evils, two of them. They've forsaken me. That's evil one. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, evil too. They've hewed out, they've dug out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Two things. They've forsaken me, I'm the spring of living water, and they've dug out for themselves holes in the ground so that they can lap up water. A cistern is just a hole in the ground that collects rainwater to drink. But this one, God says, is cracked and broken. And so sand and dirt is mixed with lukewarm water. And God says sin is like this. You have this desire to be known and loved and respected. And if you engage lust and pornography and other like things, God says it's like you're drinking from a broken cistern. You thirst. God knows you thirst. But we've abandoned him. The fountain of fresh, cold, living water that can actually quench our thirst for sin. A broken, lukewarm, lukewarm cistern. Instead of satisfying our thirst in God, we're drinking water from a garbage pit. Two weeks ago, we looked at a pattern from James. The pattern is desires of the heart can lead to sin And sin, when it's fully grown, will lead to death. James 1.15. Desire, which can be good or bad. Desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Satisfying our good desires for companionship or rest or acceptance or respect or adventure in sin. If we satisfy those good desires in sin, it's like drinking from a broken cistern. Amnon's wicked desires... Cannot be satisfied with sin. So then, what's our next move? If we're entrapped in sin, where do we carry our shame? In the last point, we asked the question if we've been sinned against, where do we carry that shame and reproach? Here, we're asking the question if we are the one in sin, if we are like Amnon, where do we carry our shame? We carry our shame to the merciful God. Repent from our attempt to satisfy our thirst with a broken cistern and turn to the merciful God, Jesus, the fountain of living water. In Romans eight thirteen, Paul says, put to death the deeds of the body. Don't mess around with sin. Put it to death. Here's Derek Thomas. There is to be no peace with sin, It is imperative that sin be destroyed. Its life is not to be spared. There must be radical destruction of sin. Kill it, strangle it, starve it of oxygen until it cannot breathe again. Too extreme? Here's Jesus again in Matthew 5, speaking of lust. Cut off your hand and pluck out your eye. Better to lose a few members of your body than your whole body go to hell. Fighting sin is this serious. Fighting sin with this level of sincerity is a sign that we are alive and that the Spirit is operating in our lives. Turn from sin with unrelenting effort, not to be accepted by God. We don't turn from sin in order to be accepted by God. Our turning from sin happens after God has made us alive. We fight sin to demonstrate that we are accepted. How could God call David, a man who stole Bathsheba and killed Uriah, a man after his own heart? Because David was broken by sin. Because David turned from his sin with genuine sorrow. Psalm 51, David says, I was completely wrong. Repentance, that is genuine, sincere sorrow over what our sin costs God and others is the objective. No matter what you have done, no matter what you are doing, if you turn with genuine sorrow, you will live. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. That's what God longs for, a broken spirit. I'm a sinner. I cannot do this. I cannot be justified before you in my own strength. A broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. God will not despise a heart that's turned with genuine contrition. God longs to show mercy. So where can we carry our shame? To a merciful God. If you're neck deep in sin this morning, repent and turn to the Lord and then talk to a Christian who's able to help you feel the gospel news and turn from your sin and make it right with other people and hold you accountable to live a life of righteousness. Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, come to me and drink. Come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What does he mean? Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were about to receive. It is the power of the spirit of God who causes us to repent and to turn and obey and kill sin and pursue righteousness and honor God and pray and love others. This all comes from the spirit of God. It's his power at work in us. The Spirit applies the gospel, gives us a new heart, and gives us power to obey and to pursue righteousness. I suspect that some of you are stuck in sin. Some of us are stuck in sin because, not because we don't want to turn, but we don't believe that we actually can turn. We need to be reminded this morning of the power of the gospel that is at work in those who belong to Christ. We can flee our sin and turn to Christ. Here's the final point. Vigilante justice and the just God. Look at verse 20 of chapter 13. And Tamar's brother Absalom said to her, has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. And when King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. He was furious. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. Absalom quickly understands what's happened. And he tells Tamar to hold her peace and to not take it to heart. Absalom's advice is wrong. He should be working alongside Tamar to tell the story and to seek redress. Instead, he brings her into his home, thoughtful, Where she lives as a desolate woman. All the while, Absalom has taken it to heart and he plots revenge, refusing even to speak to Amnon. And David's actions or inaction make the situation even worse. David is very angry when he hears about what's happened, as he should be. The problem is, David does nothing to hold his eldest son accountable. David is the father. David is the king. He needs to act swiftly to ensure judgment on Amnon and restoration for Tamar. But he doesn't. And we're only left to speculate as to why. Maybe David's guilty of favoring the son over the daughter. Maybe David's insecure about his own moral footing. Who in the world am I to talk to Amnon about sexual sin? Or is David frozen because he's watching God's judgment play out in front of his very eyes? David's sins against Bathsheba and Uriah lead to a massive upheaval in David's home. The sword will never leave his home, and this will only get worse. Our sins will be modeled and absorbed in the next generation, which should cause us to shudder. In verses 23 to 27, two years have transpired and Absalom throws a party tied to sheep shearing. Sounds exciting. He convinces the king to allow Amnon and all the king's sons to travel 14 miles north of Jerusalem. David seems to know something's up, but he lets them go anyway. And in verses 28 to 29, Absalom orders his servants to get Amnon drunk and then to kill him. They're afraid because he's the heir to the throne, but they do it anyway. And Amnon is dead and the rest of the king's sons flee on their mules back to Jerusalem. Now, according to the law, Amnon should have died for the incestuous rape of his sister. That's how God feels about what he did. But David should have been the one to do it. It should have been the absolute monarch, the head of the family, who should have calmly executed his son according to the Mosaic law. Not this vigilante revenge. And remember, we're talking about Pre-cross, Old Covenant. In verses 30 to 36, David hears the news and he tears his clothes and weeps. I don't believe this is a sign of him showing that Amnon is innocent, but it's the cruel reality of watching sin infiltrate his own family. What father wouldn't grieve the hideous abuse of one child by another? This is an excruciating thing for a parent to process. Especially for David, who knows that his own sinful failure are the direct cause of this sinful dysfunction. All the king's sons return to Jerusalem except Amnon, who's dead. And Absalom, in verses 37 to 38, flees to his maternal grandfather, the king of Jeshur, for three years for protection, which sets up next week's chapter. And then in verse 39, there's a confusing end to chapter 13. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. Now we'll look more closely at this next week, but it seems that David is somehow comforted that Amnon is dead and really grateful that he's not the one who had to do it. But still he doesn't go and restore Absalom. Now we're somewhat unsatisfied with the vigilante revenge of Absalom, but even more so by the passivity of David's non-response. So let's talk about response. If you face the evil of abuse or are sitting under the evil of abuse right now, then I want you to know that our church family aims to maintain a compassionate, listening response to you. That's not to say we have no category for someone not telling the truth. It's because of this. We know how high the barrier can be to even ask for help. The fear of making things worse for you and for others. And so we want you to know that our stance will be one of listening and grieving carefully. That's why we seek to gather a group of elders and godly women to listen and ensure safety and provide care and to pray. That's not to say that we always get these complex situations right. But we try hard, I think, to stay humble and to grow. We try to patiently understand the complex dynamics of a situation and rely on authorities when laws are broken And seek the truth. So you can come to an elder. And if that feels too daunting, come with a friend. If that still feels too daunting, then reach out to one of our care and counseling deacons who the church has set aside. Mature, godly women who will listen and care for you well and help you seek help. That evil is always wrong. And we are willing to do what we can to help. To flip the coin, if you're carrying out this kind of evil towards someone else, I want you to listen carefully. The Lord is in his holy temple, says Psalm 11. The Lord's throne is in heaven and his eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Hear the word of the Lord. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Our evil is seen and will be severely judged by the Lord. We cannot keep it hidden. It will be exposed. David's non-response was evil. Absalom's vigilante response was not wise. God's response to wrong done to us or by us will be right. He is the just God. His judgment will be precise and it will be unbiased. It will be measured and it will be terrifying, which is a call for us to turn from our sin this morning. Abuse is about control. That's the desire. Whether you're male or female, whether you're terrorizing with words, or your body, or sexually, you're abusing someone else because you want control. You want to control that person to receive something from them. That's the desire at the bottom of James's grid. The question is what are you trying to control to get? Respect, acceptance, power, whatever it is, you need help. Abuse is a broken cistern, violence is a broken cistern. Cherrydale is not a safe place for you to abuse. It is a safe place for you to flee from abusive behavior and to be held accountable. At Cherrydale membership isn't a list of names. We have no interest in attracting a crowd. Our aim is to gather a family, to assemble a body, to live together as an actual community. Therefore, we want to, our members to know each other deeply so that we can grow together spiritually. Therefore, our elders spend hours trying to shepherd our church family with wisdom and with love. Our aim is to represent our just God in the complexities of human relationships. We may not get it completely right, but we have a just God who will. Where can we carry our shame? To a just God. We are all sinners. We are all sufferers. So where do we carry our shame if we're suffering like Tamar? What do we do with the pain caused by someone else's sin? Or where do we carry our shame if we're sinning like Amnon? Where do we leave our guilt to a humiliated God? He knows how much it costs To endure the weight and consequence of someone else's sin, to a merciful God who longs to show mercy to everyone who repents and turns to Christ, and to a just God who will ensure every single sin is paid for to the full measure, who will ensure that no wrong vanishes. So, the practical takeaway here is to refuge near the cross where God's mercy and justice meet. Keep your mind sheltered near the cross of Christ, where we're reminded of Jesus' humiliation, where we're reminded that He displayed His mercy for sinners and justice for sufferers. If you depend on Christ, then you are not defined by sin done against you and you are not defined by your own sin. You are not defined by that. David is a man after God's own heart because he turned and took refuge in God. You, if you are in Christ, are defined by Christ's righteousness. As Mitchell comes, I'm going to close by reading Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Would you stand and let's sing together.